Hello, everyone, and welcome to another week of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos. Hey, Sean. How are you doing, my friend? I am a functioning adult, uh, at least on paper. Congratulations. That's a big step for you. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. I've been upgraded from a functioning toddler. That's so. Yeah, I've got well, that going for me. My goal is always to get back to the toddler stage because that was really fun. It, it was. It was. Those those were the days. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Instead of all this responsibility. Whew. But you know what? Yep. I like games. I do. I like games, too. So let's <laughs> talk about games to take our minds off of our uh, adulthood. Yeah. The first news is the second uh version or the second article in the D&D Studio blog series is up and it is by <coughs> Wes Snyder, senior game designer and lead on the book that we're going to talk about this week, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. Uh, so in that post, he talks about uh, horror in D&D games, goes back, looks at its history, looks at what they were doing. Um, when they concepted and then uh, designed the new book. And, and it, overall, it was a pretty interesting read. These are the kinds of things I like to read um, when I read a blog about game design. You know, it's not necessarily overly detailed, but it also, you know, gets into sort of, this is what we were thinking and this was the outcome. And it helps me as a game designer see where they started, where they ended up, and I can sort of follow the steps in between. Yeah, it was interesting to to read this. It it, it felt a little bit salesish to me, um, mm -hmm. and, and but I wondered. I mean, basically, when I got to the end of the article, I was like, Do, did I like this? Did I not? Like, I definitely love seeing design concepts, and I really like what they did here to talk about the sort of history of Ravenloft and and how it kind of pulled off what it's done in the past, and to accept what D&D &D is as compared to other games uh, because by now I think you know most folks who are fairly involved in the industry understand that there are these other types of approaches very different approaches to horror games whether it's a crumbling Jenga tower or candles that are slowly being you know put out uh, and those kinds of approaches allow you to tell completely different stories in different ways uh, and sometimes that can fit feel more fitting to horrors and certainly is more fitting to certain types of horror. So, you know, what is it that D&D is and, and how they went about trying to do that? And I thought that was awesome. Um, mm -hmm. But it, sometimes it felt like, and in chapter five of the book that you also want, you know, it, it felt a little bit like that at yeah. times. Yeah, it, it, it was, but it's sort of, that's the point, right? It It's like, hey, here's this cool thing we made. Let me talk about it, why it's so great. Uh, I, I'm okay with yeah. that. <laughs> I'm okay with that. Cool. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the points that I would discuss in this article, we're going to discuss as we get into discussing true. the book itself. So yeah. uh, I would be fine to sort of just skip it for now, and then we'll get to it, and we can refer back to it, uh, back to this article as we talk about Chapter 4, since we're going to jump ahead and talk about this yeah. running horror games uh, approach, which I think is a, uh, the best place to start uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, they also added something to Dragon Plus. 
Do you want to talk about that? We've already discussed issue 37, but yeah. now they've added yeah, what, that. I, I'm, I'm really quite sure that this, ha which is, I don't know if this happening before, uh, there is just another article as part of issue 37 uh, because I went back over my notes and it wasn't there. And, and, and yeah, I don't think this was there. So there is now a new article in issue 37 that tells us all about the Underdark and Secrets of the Drow. And it links to the video we talked about last week. Um, but it also kind of rewrites or, or frames in slightly different ways the the news of the different types of drow. And that's kind of a big focus of this article. So the concept is that Lolth has been running a misinformation campaign. <laughs> and we've all fallen prey to it. So she convinced <laughs> Menzo Bronson's Uda drow uh, that they were the only drow. And that there are no drow above ground, but that is actually not true. So the reality is now in this edition that um, Menzo Bronson is a splinter group. Um, I find so much of this fascinating. I'm just going to get through what, <laughs> what it says. So then it says right. uh, the Uda drow, it talks a little bit about the design where they thought about how um, there are these two other groups that, but there are possibly others Two two such groups, not the only groups are the Avendrow and the Lorendrow, which are also known as Starlight Elves and Green Shadow Elves. So the Starlight Elves, or Avendrow, uh, remained above ground, follow their moral compasses north, vanish from history behind curtains of snow, aurora, and illusion. And they are a secretive clan steeped in magic, memory of glittering bastion of Caliday, somehow escapes even within the longest lived of elves. Um, and, you know, we're kind of teased a bit that, you know, maybe we'll learn more about this place in the future. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And what about the Lauren Drow? Yeah, so these Green Shadow Elves are another band. They also remain above ground and sought a new homeland in the towering forest to the south, which could kind of be a lot. Like, I don't, you know, this could be Cholt if you want to go into the Zendrick type angle of design. Or, right. I, I, don't, I mean, there are a lot of great forests along the Sword Coast. I assume we're still talking Sword Coast. Mm -hmm. Certain histories imagine these learned out to be living in a verdant city that straddles rivers with airy bridges and wends around trunks as grand as cathedrals. Considered in many circles to be a case of scholastic fancy gone rogue, these historians have named the Lauren Drow homeland Sekalath, or Place of Shade. And then we get mm -hmm. some art, and we're told that some of Lolth's drow like to have body markings, which seem to be like tattoos but are maybe more than that it's, it wasn't entirely clear as a sign of her favor so i guess that means that sometimes you would know this is a lolthite because of the markings but not all lolthites have markings so it's yeah. just a thing that can sometimes be used in the art what do you think about all this well i i'm wondering you know i'm i put on my business hat and i'm wondering if uh obviously this is not the history that we know from you know, AD&D days when <laughs> right. uh, the drow were first introduced in Greyhawk, of all places. Uh, but times as they are, this lore needs to be updated for obvious reasons. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm wondering if if this is all we're going to see of this or if we're going to see not just role-playing game products, but also video games and also you know, other aspects of uh, content delivery being uh, created to enforce and reinforce this knowledge. 
Uh, I would yeah. hope that the latter is true, that they don't just put this out there and then say, okay, we're done. Um, I hope that they build on it and make make a great story from from this rather than just applying the Band-Aid and then letting it go from there. I think you're right because of the videos they've shared where they clearly involved Ari Salvatore. And he's, I mean, he's been instrumental in the, uh, in any Forgotten Realms view and, and really all of D&D's view of what drow are. Um, right. His words have defined drow culture. And so now he's going back, I think, with this misinformation it allows him to tell a story. It, it, the, the bits that have been out there make me think that his novel that's coming out will include these aspects, which tells me that, you know, they've been at the, at the meeting board for a while, right? Thinking through how do we do this yep. and, and making sure that it's in, it's in concert with his works. So, I mean, I think we're really looking at the lore that D and D will now use. And if we ever do get a gray Hawk, I bet it will involve this aspect as well. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, uh, yeah, that's it's a good addition. If you've already read Dragon Magazine for this issue, go on back and uh, check out this article. Uh, the D&D Adventures League has released a fundraising bundle for Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. 18 adventures from Guild Adapts and CCC programs showcasing, uh, showcasing Asian, Asian American, and Pacific Islander authors. Um, yeah, there are yeah, and, quite and a I few. I think this might have ended by the time it comes this airs but um because i've seen some tweets suggesting that you know the, the end is near for this bundle um but what i really like is the interviews mm -hmm. uh, and those i think are still you know folks even if you can't get the bundle go check out the yawning yeah. portal blog because that's yeah. that's really cool and, and there's some really neat people that are that are interviewed there they have a little kind of paragraph piece talking about their backgrounds and just showcasing the diversity of the writers that are in our hobby. Um, many of whom are, are also in the adventures league side of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and we had um, one. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Go for it. Oh, we had one of the authors, uh, Marcelo de Velasquez, uh, on our show when we went through the Rhyme of the Frostmaiden uh, episode where we had other people come in and talk about their experiences DMing. So it was great to have him on the show, and it's great to see him uh, being highlighted here on the Yawning Portal blog. Uh, we also uh, heard from some of our friends, Jay Africa, Kat Kruger, Lisa Penrose, many other excellent authors uh, were highlighted for this. So, uh if it's not still up, as Teo said, at least go check out their work and support them uh, via other ways if you can. Yeah. We have more Magic the Gathering D&D card set news. There is now a dungeon mechanic involved. Um, I did not read about this, so I'm going to let Teos uh, explain. It doesn't sound like we know much, but I guess a variant of a card was posted by an artist, and that variant has some keywords on it uh, it mentions venture into a dungeon so it's you know if you've done this and then it also has a keyword that activates if the player has completed a dungeon so if you've completed a dungeon you gain flying um and so we don't know what the means what it exactly means but it is cool to be like all right there is a new mechanic that will be in the DD card set that will involve this sort of go into dungeons and and benefit from it so that's kind of neat that that's interesting, huh? 
I could, I don't even know a lot about magic, but I could see that being very cool. Um, playing a dungeon against your opponent and they can't do anything until they go through the dungeon, uh, or having land yeah. that is a dungeon, uh, would be interesting as right. well. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious how <laughs> it works. I used to play a, a collectible card game, uh, for shadow run. I was stupidly into it, spent way too much. That was my money spent. It wasn't magic. It was shadow run. And they had a mechanic where you would go on a shadow run. Uh, and so each player had a, a, a kind of essentially a dungeon card or a, a mission card, uh, actually up to three. And you'd put them out there and then you'd trap them. And that was a lot of fun to sort of like, you know, force players okay. to go there when they weren't prepared and things like that. Nice. Interesting. Well, I, I'm... I, I never thought I would hear these words coming out of my mouth, but I'm really interested in playing Magic the Gathering soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good times. Me too. Uh, speaking of good times, uh, the Arcadia issue four is now available. Um, we have the return of Willie Abiel for more mounts in an article called Swimming Through Sand to Sea. Uh, so he had mounts in his previous adventure and, uh, or his previous article. And now he has mounts like the chill, the bulette, the juvenile purple worm, the axolotl and so on. And, uh, magic items to help bring mounts into dungeons, which is, you know, always playing the cavalier back in the day. It was always like, you have all these benefits while you're mounted. And oh, by the way, you now have to crawl down this, you know, four foot diameter hole. So Sorry about that. Yep. Uh, what other uh, articles did you note? I mean, so that one has a lot of very funny puns. There's a, a jokes about a little axolotl and a lot of axolotl. Uh, <laughs> but um, there is a very cool adventure, The Chain Library, written by Cat Evans. And this is a, a place where in this library they guard tomes that are too dangerous for mortal eyes. Mm. And so, of course, that's the kind of thing adventurers have to go check out. Um, yes. And then Derek Ruiz, who we recently talked about, I mean, just last week we mentioned him as one of the authors that I thought had a really cool adventure in Candlekeep Mysteries. That was his first um, publication through through Wizards. Um, now we see him uh, writing for MCDM. And these are five encounters you can drop into your game as the characters travel from one place to another on the road encounters. Um, so this is great. Arcade, I think, usually is going to have three articles, which I think is a, a great, it's still an unbelievable steal. Sometimes you get four, but um, these are three really neat encounters, and the art is, as always, just unbelievable. Like, the, the pictures of the mount, I've got them up on my screen right now, and, like, like the mount, the purple worm mount is, <laughs> it's just great. It's just wonderful art. All of the, the art, the cover, everything is just fantastic, and... Uh, the, the entrance to the chain library. I'm just, just beautiful. I, I love everything about Arcadia. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. And uh, some other articles to take note of are coming out from Cobalt Press. Uh, two friends of the show, Celeste Conowich and Greg Marks, have articles. Uh, Celeste writes uh, about playing with class, and this one is called Forge a Fabulous Fighter, where she covers how to play a fighter and outlines various options. And then Greg Marks writes another in his Trap Master series, this one on incremental traps, traps that have phases which activate when adventurers take certain actions. So, uh, for example, if a room uh, is filling up with lava and the players break the walls rather than climb up, then more lava begins uh, pouring in. So 
those two articles are up at the Cobalt Press website. Uh, any thoughts on those? That's yeah, been a great, both these have been great series. Like the Play With Class does a really nice job of, of getting you started with a particular class. So if, you, if you're new to the game or if you've never played a particular class, this is a really useful series. And the traps are just, I mean, it's, it, it's um, great insight uh, and also very evil insight. I mean, I was reading this latest article and I, it's just, it's hilarious how Greg will kill you with lava. <laughs> yeah. Many ways to die with lava. Yeah. Many nice. ways to die. The floor is lava. Yep. And uh, along the Cobalt Press lines, there is a, an, uh, an article. It's not put up by Cobalt Press, but it mentions Cobalt Press's product, Empire of the Ghouls. Uh, Richard Green was the lead designer of that product. And now he's starting a blog series on how to run Empire of the Ghouls by uh, borrowing ideas from Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft to enhance gameplay by adding that extra touch of horror. And I, we've, I know that we've covered the Empire of the Ghouls, not in depth, but we've mentioned it on other episodes. Um, a great product from, from Cobalt Press. Really cool setting and adventure to go along with it. And it fits right into this sort of horror uh, genre that Van Richten's uh, delivers. So the lead designer of the Empire of the Ghouls, Richard Green, again, is uh, sharing his insights and his suggestions on melding the two to make you know the best possible horror campaign for your for your money. So that's at richardgreengames.com. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. Any, yeah, any, I love it when you get a, a lead author like that just peeling things back, right? And and looking at a, how a product can apply to something else. That's a really neat uh, perspective. So I'm looking forward to this. This, this one's on character op options. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see how he applies all of the Ravenloft Van Richten's content to it. Mm -hmm. And our last bit of news here is, uh, Grant Ellis has, has launched a 10 minute tabletop talk. Uh, what, what are the details on this? Yeah. So he is, uh, Grant Ellis is a renowned game designer and streamer. He is on the Twitters heavily and he's often behind the scenes on live play games. If you're watching a stream and you're like, how does that just all work? All these little boxes and the people and, and how do splash screens come up? And so he's one of the people who's often producing that, that effect behind the scenes. Uh, he was also the author of grim world, which is a setting that was done for 2C gaming is one of their mm -hmm. kickstarters. And recently he launched a podcast that is on YouTube that does a quick 10 minute interview with someone about a topic. Uh, there are many fun episodes out there already. One near and dear to my heart because I like the gumshoe system and I like Rudy Basso is Rudy Basso and Grant talking about gumshoe and what they like about it. And, uh, and it's fun. I mean, it's just the 10 minutes goes, it goes by so quickly. So it's just a fun, you can just dip in, hear one person's yeah. perspective on one topic. And and before you know it, it's done. It's cool. I am, I am bookmarking that as we speak. Awesome. Yeah. So that, that was our news this week. And now we are going to dip into Van Richten's guide to Ravenloft. Um, we're going to jump around. We're not going to go straight through chapter by chapter. We're going to jump from chapter to chapter in an order that we think best fits our reading schedule and uh, how to digest the content therein. And because of that, we're going to start with chapter four, which talks about you know running a horror adventure or running a horror campaign. Uh, but first, we will give uh, an overview of what's in the book. 
But before we do that, we want to talk about the tone that we're going to uh, take for these these talks about Van Richten's Guide. Uh, so the first thing we want to let you know is we're not going to go in-depth about horrible things. That's not our plan. Uh, but just do be aware that we are going to talk about horror in general and we're running a D&D horror campaign. Uh, so we're not going to talk about gore. We're not going to talk about you know, all of the, of the things that may trigger you. Uh, but just be warned that, that we are talking about this topic. Uh, anything you want to add along those lines? No, I, th- I think that's great. So yeah, we're looking at chapter four, I think specifically because when we, when we look at what the book and we'll talk about the overview, what the book has, when we look at what the book has, um, it, it does what all D and D books kind of want to do. It starts with character options because that's how you get the players to buy this book and get a diverse audience buying it. It's easier to sell your DMs on it, so you put the DM info in the back. But the DM info is actually, I think, really important for anyone to read, not just uh, the DMs, because it sets the tone of what all this is about, of, of what it's like to have horror in D&D. So that's what we're going to start with. But yeah, I think we should talk, or maybe just mention what the, the outline of this book is like. Okay. So uh, the overview of the book, it has five chapters plus the spirit board. Uh, Chapter one talks about character creation, which gives uh, general information. And then it goes into character uh, mechanics, such as lineages, dark gifts. There is a new subclass option for the bard and the warlock, uh, new backgrounds and uh, trinkets that have sort of a creepy horror aspect to them. Uh, what's in chapter two? Yeah, so chapter two is all about the creation of a domain of dread. And I thought this was interesting that they start with creation before the domains themselves. Um, and, and maybe that's a good way to sort of answer. It's probably just good all around to say, hey, here's how to make your, your domain of dread. Later, we're going to show you the ones that, you know, sort of are canonical. Um, and that lets you make... Uh, one that they decided not to cover that might have been in older products or to make your own. So I like that that organization there. Um, and as part of this chapter two, they're also talking about the genres of horror because as we've said in previous shows, what they've taken the approach with, uh, how they've taken approach with the, their domains is that each domain is a type of horror. And, and that lets them focus the experience and, and also lets us, the players and the DM, uh, focus that experience. So they talk about the genres of horror, uh, body, cosmic, dark fantasy, folk horror, ghost stories, gothic horror, and then other, um, as the main types that you can look to use as the influence and underpinning of your domain. Cool. Uh, chapter three then goes into specific domains within Ravenloft. This is sort of the gazetteer, uh, of, of the, of the different domains. So it gives general information on the myths themselves, which make all of this possible and uh, give you domains, 17 detailed domains, uh, plus some brief snippets of information on several others. And then they give uh, NPC information, uh, different organizations that uh, exist within domains or across domains or within the myths themselves. Uh, chapter four, the chapter we're going to discuss talks about, uh, horror adventures. We're going to review that. 
And then chapter five talks about the monsters of Ravenloft, giving you some new monsters to play around with. Yeah, pretty neat. And uh, and then we get, as you mentioned, the spirit board, which is an, a new tool, the way that we had uh, the Taroka cards that were used in the classic Ravenloft. So now we get a sort of Ouija board uh, mm -hmm. experience to have there. Yep. Um, Okay, so we will now delve deep into chapter four, and we're going to start with a quote. The tools and techniques in this chapter provide ways to make sure your game is both spooky and safe in ways right for your specific group. A toolbox of horror-focused rules also provides options for what sort of grim adventures you might create. At the end of this chapter, a horror adventure puts these methods to use and leads characters on their first steps into the domains of dread. So there you go. They're going to tell us how to run a spooky but safe uh, game. And yep. I want to step back all the way back and talk <laughs> about talk about the problem with horror in D&D. Uh, the problem with horror in D&D is... We get instructions right away not to terrify the players, but to terrify the characters. Uh, so therefore, it becomes a an exercise in role-playing someone who is scared rather than being scared yourself. Every other horror-based medium really is about you being scared. If you read a Stephen King mm -hmm novel you're you're reading it because right. when you turn out the light you're thinking what's under the bed when you <laughs> go on a roller coaster you're going to have your your guts lifted up into your throat and to feel that vertigo when you watch a horror movie you want to be scared you want that adrenaline rush that's why most people go so this is the opposite of all of that this is pretending that you're scared which for me doesn't have any of the juice that any of those other <laughs> things has uh so i i'm trying now to to understand why even bother with horror in dnd &D, or why <laughs> call it out specifically when you already have mind flayers and aboliths and ghosts and all of these other things uh so I, I want to get that perspective out there right away because I am not the target audience for this sort of thing. I, I mm -hmm. like the idea of, of Gothic uh, stories and stories that are sort of weird and mysterious and out of the norm. But in terms of straight horror, uh, that's, that's something different to me. Yeah. Does that make sense? I, I agree with you. I, I'm, yeah, I, I'm the same way. And, and what's interesting to me is I think that all this discussion about Ravenloft, it's been interesting listening to, like, say, the official podcast. Both hosts sort of say, like, yeah, I'm not really super into scary stuff. And they'll have guests on. And the majority of them are sort of like, yeah, I don't super love the scary stuff. And then, and then they had a, a guest on and she was like, yeah, I'm super into body horror. <laughs> and yeah. so you just, you have such a variance in what people want out of their experience. Um, yeah. And, and I think that that's, that's a really important consideration. And, and, and I almost would have talked about this up front. There, there is a lot here that says different people like different things, 
but but maybe to even start and say that what what is a horror experience is very different for each person and as you said like i love a cool gothic tale i love a tale of sorrow um you know the, the my favorite horror stories are ones where there is this tragic underpinning and that story is, is really interesting to peel back and, and resolve um that kind of you know these these mysteries those kinds of elements um and and but you know other people want that kind of really tough experience and i think that's why games like dread or you know mm -hmm. uh, other games like that where, where there is an actual sort of terrifying mechanic to it and you know you will all die or even cthulhu right the classic we right. will go insane right when you play various versions yeah. of that game um you know to to find out what's going on is to lose the game and 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 you're heading towards that direction sort of that's and happily so right right and that was I was going to bring up Call of Cthulhu because trying to get D, you know long term D and D players trying to get them to play Call of Cthulhu or a Cthulhu like game um, where it's not are we going to die it's how are we going to die slash you know lose our minds <laughs> right uh, they just they many many players a majority a vast majority of those players enjoyed the experience for it like a one shot yeah but. They they just they knew what the end was going to be, and they just couldn't couldn't get into it. Which is especially so, fascinating. If I can just add that, that back when you and I sort of started, our characters were dying all the time in D and D, and yet right. even then, the idea of playing a character that you know is gonna die, what was a hard thing for people to to, to deal with, and I, I yeah. think it probably is even harder today to think yeah. of. You know, we saw this a Tomb of Annihilation, even. The idea that, like, well, your character will probably die. A lot of players go, uh, wait, what? I'm, yeah. It's not what I want out of this. Right, exactly. And and uh, th there are definitely players who can make that switch. Okay, I'm playing D&D &D now. My, you know, my whole goal is to succeed and reach my goals, get to the highest level I can, you know, become the god or whatever that, that goal is. Yeah. And then they can go play Call of Cthulhu and and say, okay, different mindset, different game. But and that's just, uh, going back to Wes Snyder's design blog, where he said, you know, we didn't want to make D and D something other than D and D, which I applauded. You know, they shouldn't. You should play D and D because you like D and D, and and what it brings. And I don't want to try to cram uh, some other structure on D and D to make it work for horror. Uh, but then it becomes right. problematic about how do you do horror with D and D? Um, so, so yeah, to get I, into I what, think, Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, I, was, I think I was thinking the same thing as you, which is all right. So what is this book trying to do? And, and this book spends a fair amount of, of space for what an RPG book is, you know, at least six pages on this idea of preparing for horror and running horror games and then kind of how to end a session. And it may not perfectly address all of these issues, but I think it does a pretty good job at giving you uh, different angles to look at the situation for so that I think most players and most DMs who read this will come out of it with good understanding and some concepts around some ideas around how to change their game up to make up for these, these challenges. Mm -hmm. And 
really most of what they say in, in these six pages is the same thing that you would get from any game saying run a session zero, put safety tools in place. It's really detailed, really good advice that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with horror. Uh, yeah, there are parts that say, you know, talk about what horror means and, and what's too much and what's not enough. But you can also do that with violence. You can also do that with you know, you know sexual content. You can also do that with, with any sort of content that you're putting in D&D. What's too much? What's too little? Um, so it is great advice. It's just not necessarily specific to horror in general. And the second point I was going to make is I love, I love the, 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 the thought of preparing for horror. Right. <laughs> it's like preparing for and uh, preparing for the unpreparable. Right. Horror yeah. is like me there and and this is like okay, prepare for something that yeah is going to be shocking. Well, I, I don't know. I think that some of what this this book does and I mean it's it's overdue because these are all topics we wouldn't even talk about when D D mm -hmm. was, was new, when Ravenloft was first out. Uh, and that is to say that, wow, being aware that people are touched by topics in many different ways. And unless you talk to your players, uh, and unless you think about it as a DM, you won't know what those boundaries should be to make things more fun. And, and you can just see a simple example is, you know, if you mention insects, some people are really uncomfortable with them. And right. just putting them in a game, they'd really rather you didn't. I love insects. Sure. I love spiders. I will gladly, you know, have any kind of interaction with them. And so it's like, you know, I, if they're in an adventure, I'm sort of like, oh, it's too bad. I mean, we've got to kill them. <laughs> right. Whereas someone else really will, their reaction is, why is this in the game? Let's not. Yeah. Um, and, and so it talks about, there are a whole series of pieces here when it comes in this section, preparing for horror, where it talks about setting the expectations, having a horror content survey where we, um, and it gives us a whole bunch of questions. What should the content and theme be? Uh, what do we want to see in during the gameplay um, that that are, are helpful? And a good example of this is, is the, in a couple of places they talk about your player losing control over their character. Right, losing that agency. And this is something we see a lot in horror. A person is bound and held down while something creepy happens. Um, you know, you are held in stasis. You're taken over by a spirit. Uh, and any number of variations on that. This is a common part of horror. And some people are really into that. And some people are like, you know, I really don't want that to happen. Or I want it to happen and in ways that I can say, okay, that's enough. Right? And so having those kinds of gameplay questions are 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 you very useful um mm -hmm. and and it, you know that that is important and it is something that does need to be talked about and but it's it, it's even more subtle than that in some cases with this sort of losing control of your character which is losing control of the rules that go govern your character um mm -hmm. so you know we're, we're moving sort of from the psychological to just the game mechanical um, when you know that your character can do X, Y, and Z. Yes, I can always, I'm never at disadvantage because I'm always attacking with advantage because of this thing I have. Oh, wait, now I have a curse that where I'm always at disadvantage. 
you know, that that's yeah. not a psychological thing. That's a game mechanical thing, but that is as stressful for some people, uh, as, yeah. as any sort of psychological fear would be because of the control that they love to have in their game. Uh, so that's something that needs to be discussed as well. Uh, with, with your group, if you're going to use mechanics like fear or stress. Yeah. And the story angle. I mean, there are many horror movies where, you know, the person who is the good person and, you know, the protagonist, one of the, one of the main, you know, one of those main heroes, uh, you know, wakes up covered in blood. Oh, who'd you kill? Right. Like, is and watching that is one experience and it's horrifying and suspenseful and mysterious, but we don't necessarily want our character to commit an atrocity mm -hmm. uh, right. that we didn't actually have a say in because our, the game is about having a say in what your character does. The whole idea is that you are the hero. So, so it's good. That's, those are just all examples of things you want to talk through as to whether they're fun or not. And I think just even that hot, having the conversation, even if the characters are like, well, you know, we trust you, let's play it by ear. The fact that you've all thought through it, will make it easier for someone at the table to feel comfortable saying, you know what, can we kind of fade to black here? Or can we fast forward this or, or have this not go further? Uh, and also the DM is more likely to be thinking in their mind, huh, you know, this scene I'm doing may intrude a bit. And maybe I'll check in. How's everybody doing? Let's take a quick snack break. Um, yep. yeah. yeah, because one of the points that Wes made in that article uh, was that in, in a horror game, the DM and the players are co-conspirators in the horror. Uh, you know, just just as they should be co-conspirators in telling the story of a D&D &D game, um, they should be co-conspirators in creating this, this horror atmosphere, uh, which we are going to talk about next, <laughs> which is running horror games. While preparing and running frightening adventures, keep in mind the ebb and flow of suspense atmosphere pacing description and player involvement all influence a game's tension and directly contribute to how scary your adventures feel so let's break down some of those words atmosphere pacing description and so on yeah horror atmosphere um it's interesting how they write about this so they talk about the mood of your game and the 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 overall tone that the game has to it is it levity excitement dread um and we're given various topics to consider um, one of them this is not the first place it comes up in this book accessibility and i don't know that we've it, there probably has been some mention because dnd is vast and wide of accessibility in, in in old products but not to the extent that we see here and this is really quite remarkable that we see a really careful consideration of accessibility issues in this chapter. So a reminder that you have to consider accessibility needs with other factors. Like if you're bringing in some, you know, dim lighting, well, now folks with bad eyesight can't easily read, right? And, and it may be differently hard for different people to the point where it's not enjoyable. Loud music, if you have auditory issues and so on. And so it goes through all these different considerations um, they talk about things like the location. If you're trying to run a spooky game in your favorite local gaming store, 
that's harder than if you do it in uh, you know your basement room and you've set up candles and drawn the curtains and right but if your neighbor's mowing outside the window it's <laughs> you know that, that'll take you out of it a bit um, yeah, that's a different kind of horror, and to even rem- yes <laughs> <laughs> i'm learning about your neighbors uh mm-hmm. remove decor that takes away from the game they talk about music which is always you know an interesting thing um lighting props and i like that they're the thing they say about props their first rule is don't overdo it <laughs> yeah and, they, and they, they make a good point which is that you know props are great but don't don't just work so hard on it that it, the game hinges just on that um right. but that you know small things can go a long way um things like distractions you know if everyone's on the phone is that going to pull you out of um the mood so discuss compromises that benefit everyone and and then the idea that dungeon master models the behavior for others so use your voice tones to match the intensity and excitement of the scene create suspense you know be into it so that everybody else can follow your lead what do you think about this piece yeah it never fails to uh astound me at how close dming is to teaching because all of these mm-hmm. things you could say about a classroom, uh, you know, in terms of getting the point across, but not with no distractions. Uh, you can't do certain things because uh, of different uh, accessibility issues. And, and, you know, don't overdo certain things because then you're taking the, the focus away from the lesson you're trying to teach and putting it on the yeah. cool prop that you made. You know, all of these things. Are, are so true and they fit for not just horror games, but regular games and basically life in general. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's yeah. what I thought as I was, as yeah. I was reading all of this. That's great. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So next day talk about horror pacing. Um, and they say everything can't be scary and continuous terror is unsustainable. Uh, before players grow numb to endless tension, create opportunities for them to catch their breath and regain a temporary feeling of calm the best horror adventures are like roller coasters they ratchet up suspense and then release it building toward the next harrowing moment also mix up social interaction exploration combat and other types of encounters to create interesting and engaging pacing ensure that scenes are always somehow relevant to your story and move characters toward their goals and i read this and i'm like yes and every adventure should be like that not just horror adventures now they do make the point of don't just have horror but also don't just have anything uh, in your adventures. Yeah, I, I think I made a note about this down below that, that I, I like this. This is all good advice. And I'm not sure if it's tangible enough to the reader. And, and I think that it may have been helpful. And I know it's always hard with space. You can't devote all the space to these things. But to, to really give an example of how this should play out. Uh, and this is where I think it can end up different than than your typical adventure, though I would argue, yes, all adventurers should look at this and think about this, and all adventure writers and DMs should think about this. But the this idea of you can't have endless tension is, is really key, and it's easy. I remember being a young DM, and I would think to myself, oh, this is going to be just, you know, a horror trap fest. And you just keep going away at them and at some point they really do become numb to it because it's just well yes another hallway full of a horrible trap and yep. we're supposed to be scared and and you just can't sustain it 
And right. instead, you know, I think the book could have really painted the picture of what horror movies do to be effective or horror novels do to be effective, where we will start with unease, right? The barest mm -hmm. glimpse of something being wrong. Uh, Stranger Things, right? I'm going to ride my bike home, my, my bike home, and it is dark and, and there's like a noise and what's going on. And, and then something else happens that out of place to let us know that something is wrong and, and ratchet up that tension a bit, that suspense. And then usually something happens where it's like, Oh, we're going to see it. We're going to see the, the bad thing. And then it's like your cat was, you know, made the mop fall or something like that. Right. It's, it's something right. mundane. And so oh, there's this release mm -hmm. and then we go, wait a minute, something else is, and it, and it builds like that, right? It, that's the roller coaster right. effect. Yeah. Um, and if we see something that's actually brutal and horrid, it's usually a glimpse of it, right? A, a severed, you know, the, the, the villager that's just wiped out, right? And, but we, don't, we only just saw a clawed hand. And all of this builds up to the point where everybody around the table is having an actually exciting time mm -hmm. um, and is really prepared for what comes next, right? That, that, that way that you put those things together, that is the, the art of it um, and especially important with this kind of horror. So you, that's all of that is true. And you can even make that effect, not necessarily through the events, but just through your delivery. So they give mm -hmm. the suggestion to slow down your pace, to draw out the tension. And so, you know, as these strange things are happening, you're slowing down your voice and the players are waiting and waiting for the next mm -hmm. thing to happen. And then you can talk quickly and that, jolts them back to the sense of, okay, what's happening now? And you know, all of that is just a useful tool to get your pacing uh, sorted out ahead of time. Can I say on pacing that I think one of the, it, it should be like in every DM's uh, sort of, you know, training manual, so to speak, is to watch the episodes of the TV show Community where they play D&D. Mm -hmm. &D. And the DM Abed, he uses this technique uh, and it's partly, it's just how it's being done for television, but he, he actually controls the player's roles. But what it means is that he's very quickly going back and forth. There's to be like, Sean, your attack whizzes past the goblin's head. Uh, three orcs move forward from the East. Okay, Jim, what do you do? Right. And it just goes back and forth between everybody. But it's really quick like that. And it's super exciting to watch it. And it makes you realize, oh yeah, if I hit that pace during really exciting moments, and I go back and forth between characters like that. Like that's really gets it going, right? Makes it feel exciting. Right. And another way to do that is to talk quickly while you're talking to the characters, but then when you're describing what the monsters do, then slow things down because that <laughs> yeah. gives the characters this, this sense of, of everything's going so fast, but then time slows down when the monster acts and they have to watch everything it does and mm -hmm. you know, describe in detail its movements. But then when you go back to the characters, go quick again. Um, and yeah. that, that's a super fun way to do things. Uh, let's see, parallel scenes. They suggest splitting the party and cutting back and forth. Uh, I agree most of the time that splitting the party doesn't necessarily slow things down unless you have a lot of description that you need to do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Yes, it's true that even when the party split, you can give everyone equal time. But 
there is a lag as you set the scene for one player or one group of players while the others are able to take part. And if they're paying yeah. attention, that's great. If, if, they're a, if, if they're a group, if they're a player that can be in on the, the scene, even though their characters aren't and they're listening and they're engaged, then split them all to have seven different things going on at once. That's fine. Um, but if they sort of tune out when another person is in the spotlight, uh, it can quickly degenerate into a lack of attention. Yeah. And that's another thing that the DM can help with is making things really clear because it, it, it's true. If you're thinking that cutscene, you know, okay, you know, Kate, what do you do? And if Kate has to say, all right, tell me about the room again. What's it look like? Yep. Mm-hmm. And there are, there are how many spirits floating? Where are they? Could you drop, you know, and say, oh, okay. And we do all this. And then, you know, it, we're not having that director's cut feel because yeah. we have to yep. go over everything again. And, and that's on us, right? Where we want to make it all digestible. Um, and this idea of parallel scenes, you know, splitting the party can be tough. And, and of course, it's such a horror trope that sometimes players will just think, like, we're not splitting up. That's how they'll kill us. Um, so, but you can do this by, say, having a big room, right? If you think of, like, a warehouse-type place. And so one person is drawn to go, you know, what's, what's under these, you know, blankets? And someone else wants to look at the odd machine. And you can cut back and forth between them to create that feeling, but everybody's in the same room. Uh, and that makes it easier because uh, you, you still have all the elements there and everybody's nearby, but you're, you treat it like a cutscene, like in that way. Yep. And if even and it gives if you, you that sense to... of, of. Go ahead. As you say, it gives you a sense of things that are evolving. Um, so, you know, as the person's pulling the curtains, the other person's messing with the machine and someone else goes to look at the examination table and all of this creates that feeling of, of fluidity and, and mm-hmm. suspense because any one of these could turn out to be important and, and exciting. Yeah. And so it's yeah. a good way to do it. And it may seem obvious, but I'm going to say it anyway. If they, if you do that, even if you have to change the adventure, uh, or the description, Time it so that as you're cutting back and forth, everything is culminating to its peak at the same time. So don't let the one character pull back the sheet to reveal the zombie and then go back to the other character who's, you know, fidgeting with something else. Have all of these things that are about to go wrong happen. Put the zombie, uh, you know, under the sheet. Put a zombie behind the door. Put a zombie under the bed. And as everyone's investigating, they all come out at the same time. And those are great scenes. We see that in, in, in movies all the time where people are doing different things and they're all, they all go wrong at the same time, right? And, and even the person maybe hasn't quite taken their action, you know, they were going to pull the sheet off of something and the sheet just falls on its own, right? So they're, they're looking over what their friend is doing and then they turn back to what they were going to do and, oh, there's this horrible thing there that has removed its sheet from itself. And then so it ends up being at the same time, right? So there are tricks like that that you can do. And yeah, you can look at good um, scenes in an entirely new light. If you think of it as a DM and and what if this were an adventure, it it gives you real feel for what the the directors are doing in these scenes, right? To to make it all work and be exciting. For sure. A couple other points here under pacing, they talk about reliability and trust saying, don't betray the party all the time. You can state that someone is trustworthy, and then it's about whether the party can keep those trustworthy NPCs safe. Uh, so, again, it's it's don't keep going back to the same well every time. Uh, although, yeah. you know, 
there, there should be some sense of betrayal at some point, especially if the characters don't do the things they need to do to keep the trust of the NPCs, mm-hmm. right? If the characters abuse these NPCs, uh, the NPC could just as easily go to the castle of the count and say, listen, you know, I know these heroes are, uh, are after you. They're not being nice to me. So I'll give you them. If you, if you be nice to me, uh, maybe <laughs> that's something, you know, so, yeah. uh, you know, all of these things, while it's a good tip, it doesn't have to be a hard and fast rule, depending on the story that you're telling. All they really mean is uh, by saying reliability and trust is there should be some safe space uh, for the yeah. characters. There should be an anchor on which they know will, will be there because they need that to have some hope in this otherwise hopeless situation. And that takes us to the last point, which is just enough hope. <laughs> Yeah. Before you get to that, I just want to say that um, I think there was some, uh, it was a podcast. I think Kenneth Height was doing many moons ago, and it was about the idea of mysteries and red herrings, and and it was more like spy genre type. But the point of it was that you only want so many kind of question threads that the players are following in trying to unravel what's going on, and only want so many red herrings. And, and the way to think of it, and, and TV shows and novels do this as well, is you have a few possibilities that are out there. And as you resolve one, then you give a little bit of time and then you introduce another. But you can't just overwhelm. And the same thing with, with this reliability and trust angle. If everybody's always backstabbing you, you will never trust anybody and you just won't want to relate to NPCs. Yeah. And what the horror genre usually does well is that people are weak. Uh, and the horror genre tends to exacerbate that, right? So if, if we have, you know, one of the seven deadly sins as sort of a, an archetype draped over an NPC, they might fall to this uh, in a certain situation. Their greed or their lust or their, um, their fear, right? These kinds of things, they fall apart and they do things. And it's not necessarily because they're, you can't trust any NPC, but more that these are tough situations. So you can use all those variants to, to regulate it. What you just don't want is you don't want players who just refuse to interact with any NPC because they know they're going to get punished for it. <laughs> and yep. they don't create that kind of a game. True. Uh, and, and the last uh, bit, well, the next to the last bit is uh, just enough hope. So, you know, fear without hope leads to apathy. So don't uh, use impossible situations all the time. Don't have the characters rescued by NPCs. You know, reward characters who do the heroic and dramatic things and and who lean into the horror as opposed to resist it. Uh, And then end on cliffhangers is the final bit of uh, advice for pacing. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's pretty, pretty obvious. It's it's a it's a normal D&D thing. Oh, we're going to end this session just as you're about to go over the cliff or just as you're about to enter this battle. And here we go. Uh, let's see. What else do they talk about here? They talk about uh, describing horror. You want to yeah, lead us through this? Yeah, this is near and dear to my heart. The whole idea that you don't describe the monster uh, you know, right off the bat. You build up to it. Um, any horrible thing, give glimpses, ease into it so that more and more is being provided. That makes it way scarier to people. Um, I remember even when we played, I, I ran my kids through the first tyranny of dragons adventure that you wrote and 
there's that one where they go into the mausoleum and descend. Mm -hmm. right. And just the way that was described, they were, they were really kind of, they were like, is this going to be too much? And I'm like, no, no, this will be fine. You know, but they, <laughs> I had to kind of relax them and, and take a little pause because it was just that, that in anticipation, that's the beauty of it is our brains fill that space. Right. And so just give right. little bits and the players will do that. And I liked to hear they had, um, uh, this comment, uh, to not describe a thing fully. I can't find any of those, but they talked about like the vampire, like describe its eyes mm -hmm. and the players will, do, will fill in the rest of the description. You don't actually have to, if you just f focus on one horrible aspect of it, the truth is that the players will provide the rest of the description themselves, which is great. Yeah. And another bit of advice along those lines is describe the other senses before the sense of sight. Uh, because mm -hmm. that most people I think are more visually inclined than, than any of the other senses. So if you deny that with other descriptions, it, lets their imaginations roam a little bit further than it normally would if you start out with a visual description. Yeah, and, and they have really, there's good advice here, right? Like before it arrives, foreshadow its approach, things like the weather, nature, you know, if, if there's a deer in the road and suddenly it just bolts, right? Or um, a strange lights, uh, shadows lengthen, right? All that kind of thing makes it really exciting. Uh, the sounds it makes, how it smells, how it breathes, does it change the air around it? How does it stand? What does its touch feel like? That's a kind of cool one, right? Something creepy yep. and then, you know, the monk goes and punches it. Well, what's that feel? What's it sound yeah. like the puncher or whatever, yeah. right? That's, yeah. yeah. Uh, next, we have horror gameplay. We get into the mechanical uh, game aspects of D&D &D and how they can influence uh, horror. So... Do we want to get into this now, or do we want to wait till next time? Um, what's the timing here? Uh, I mean, I think we could maybe do this. Yeah, we're, we're close. Why don't we, why don't we push through? Okay, cool. Uh, so we, you have horror threats, um, where the genre often nullifies the hero's strengths. In D&D, that may not be the fun that the players want to have, and that's sort of what I described earlier of taking away mm -hmm. their abilities, which they've counted on when they created their characters. Um, so do you want to sort of walk us through the, the yeah. bullets here? They, they give a few examples of, of how we can do these real gameplay aspects to make them work. So, you know, if you think of a vampire, it's in, sometimes in novels or in television, it's like this creature is un unkillable. Um, super speed and vulnerable kinds of stuff, just too much. And so they're saying balance immunity to common PC tactics with vulnerability to something else. So focus mm -hmm. on that unlocking, you know, if we can't kill the mummy with our blades, oh, wait, maybe it's fire, right? And so mm -hmm. go to the torches and that makes it fun. Um, having monsters do creepy things, which you wouldn't do in other genres. So like, what if the cultists all spend their action chanting to a sinister god? That's really creepy, right? And and could be well worth it and make the counter whole lot more fun, even though they didn't take actions to attack the party that round, right? It could actually be more fun for that. Yeah. Um, I love this. Use a lesser monster that the party thinks is the threat, mm -hmm. and then the actual threat shows up and just tears apart that monster. 
right. <laughs> and just yep. eats it, right? It's like the T-Rex eating the smaller dino yeah. kind of scene. Like, oh, yeah. that's the bad thing? Let's get out of here. Um, mm. And one that's really good, have foes play dead and then return to life. Um, and, and there's yeah. a lot you can do with that kind of, uh, you could have, you know, a shadow or spirit type thing, like seem to dissipate, but then it just creeps up from behind. I mean, those kinds of things are all really fun to do. Yeah. No, I mean, all those are, are good advice. And again, they're, they're good advice, uh, whether you're doing horror or doing anything else, uh, just to, to sort of change things up, to make things different in this particular adventure or in this particular encounter, to to keep the players on their toes to to get keep them from getting too settled in without completely ripping the reality of the game out from under them yeah uh there's a sidebar on on subverting cliches this includes things like um and i think it's things that dnd itself has had to to learn as it's been writing the story of ravenloft and other horror areas um, when you paint the culture, like everybody's exactly from the same, uh, has the same kind of characteristics, uh, and approaches and thoughts. So don't do that. Treat characters like real people with real motivations, with variants, vary your genders, ethnicities, sexualities, beliefs, disabilities. Don't use cliche accents to represent marginalized peoples. Uh, we saw this in Rhyme with Ross Maiden, um, but you know, th that idea of, of really taking this to heart and thinking through this so that you have a better game. Um, there's some advice here about the typical D and D session being longer than a typical horror movie, which I thought was an interesting, I'm like, oh yeah, huh? Yeah. Four yeah. hours, uh, is yeah. longer than a movie. And and so to think about how sustaining that atmosphere can be difficult. So take breaks, check in, encourage players to step away when they need it. Um, and that's good to think about that kind of, you know, pacing and then how it all feels. I know even with, with Tomb of Annihilation, when I was running that, that sense that, you know, any step could be your last was heavy for some of the players. Mm -hmm. And towards the end of the campaign, uh, there was at least one player who I think kind of, you know, wanted us to fast forward a bit, kind of like this has been a little stressful. And right. and it's funny because you, you want it to be a little stressful because, I mean, it's right. Tomb of Annihilation, but you also don't want it to be not fun. And so we would talk often, sort of, how are we doing? And, and the reality is I think if the campaign had gone longer, they probably would have been like, you know, this is too much for me. Um, but yep. they knew the end was coming and, and that, you know, and, and, and what it told me as DM is I did not escalate the toughness i kept it where it was because right. to escalate i think would have been you know I, okay would have been too much um so there's there's a lot here they mentioned the x card they uh, how to engage players and this is one that I, I, the, the way the advice is written is a little um i, I could have used maybe a slight different explanation but so it talks about if someone isn't engaged check in and i think what it could have noted is not all players engage and so I think the real question well, is if someone is not engaging the way they normally would, then that's where you want to really say, hey, you know, how's it going for you? Because right. some people are more observer type of players, and that's all just fine. It's what they want to do. That's perfectly legitimate. But some right. people might be, it might be a sign that they, if, if it's a change, and then it could be a sign that something has gone wrong. You want to see what's going on there. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's a great point, uh, is not just check-in, but check-in especially when you see a difference in behavior from a, from a player. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, but this is all good. I mean, I, I think that the, they could have gone back also here and mentioned that the idea of that survey at the beginning of your game or in a session zero discussion where you say, hey, what is everybody liking? Go back and do that survey again after, you know, four sessions, after the, mm -hmm. you know, even every four, something like that. And just how are we all doing? What are we liking? Is good in any kind of campaign, but especially a horror campaign. Um, and there's this last section here, which is after the horror that just says, check in with players at the end of a session and we are given some ideas on questions to ask. So it's that same kind of concept. Um, and it's not a bad thing. A lot of times when we're wrapping up, it, it's like we've reached the end of the game time and people need to go, uh, especially mm -hmm. as you have older players that have responsibilities and you know, work the next day and everybody really wants to get in their car and drive home. But if you can spend or, or turn off the zoom, um, if you can spend the, the, those moments to sort of see how people are, are feeling, that is a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, this, again, goes back to education, right? It's, this is what I'm going to teach you. <laughs> okay, I, I am teaching you this. This is what I have taught you. Did you learn what I was said I was going to teach you? And if you didn't, why didn't you learn what I <laughs> said I was going to teach you? Same thing here. This is, this is what our game is going to yeah. be. Everyone good with that? Yeah. Is this what our game was? Is everyone good with that? You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's just good communication, um, you know, good interpersonal uh, conflict resolution skills all around. Yeah, yeah, that's all really good advice. And I, the better campaigns, I think the, I, I run better campaigns as I learn to communicate better with my players, mm -hmm. uh, unquestionably so. And so the more that you are having this dialogue, the more that you understand where they're coming from, what they're enjoying, what they're not enjoying, and how to go in the right direction. Yep. Um, so that's everything that's in this first part of this chapter before they get to sort of tools uh, and the Taroka deck and spirit board. Um, I did want to say that the advice that we've covered, there is something similar that this reminded me of, which is um, the Fate Horror Toolkit, mm -hmm. which is created by Evil Hat. You can find it on drive-thru or at the Evil Hat store. It's 10 bucks, platinum bestseller on drive-thru. And it has tools, tips, themes, aspects, compels, uh, which are an interesting tool that I think they're going to sort of use here a little bit. Um, yep. But that's another, you know, this is a, a it's like a hundred something pages full of really good advice on this kind of running horror. So if you're looking for more and you want a different, slightly different take on how to approach horror games, um, there's a lot of advice that's game independent. So it doesn't matter if you're not running Fate, if you're running D&D, this is helpful to you. So I do recommend that Fate Horror Toolkit. It's a, it's a neat product and. Sure, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from other role-playing games, and Fate is a really good one to, to teach some lessons about running games and, and character interaction and so on. Yep. Sweet. So we will continue more of our discussion about Van Richten's guide next time. But I want to thank everybody for listening out there. Uh, if you would like to support our show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash mmp. Uh, to give us a little bit to keep the lights on, keep our mics warm. Uh, and thank you to those patrons who are already pledging some support. Uh, Teos, thank where you. can people find you on social media? You can find me on my blog at alphastream.org. Uh, join my mailing list as I prepare for some neat stuff, and I'll give you something free if you sign up. And then on the Twitterverse, you can find me at alphastream. Uh, How about you, you can Sean? find me on uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. 
or at the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com. And you can also follow the show's Twitter account at Mastering D&D. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Mr. Abadia, now that we have figured out how to run a horror adventure, what are we going to do now? We are going to follow the cackling, cackling sounds around that dark corner. And then where we see all those hanging sheets, we'll peel one back and we'll stab it. See? You see what he did there? That's a master DM. <laughs>